Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 11, Leviticus chapter 8. Well, just as uh, chapters 6 and 7 of Leviticus are a unit, so are chapters 8, 9, and 10 a unit. Now, these three chapters that we're about to get into are going to present us with the ordination of the very first priesthood in Israel. Now, to be clear, all these previous chapters of Leviticus, including the last several chapters of Exodus, lay out many rules and regulations for both the common folks and for the priests. But... These have not been carried out yet. Okay. So, as of the beginning of, of Leviticus chapter 8, no priesthood yet exists. All right. Only the instruction about how it should operate once it's established. Okay. Now, we've seen beginning in Exodus 20 and continuing through Leviticus 7, a very intricate and precise societal structure. Uh, created for Israel, a structure ordained by Jehovah, okay, for the very purpose of making Israel a holy nation that's set apart for himself. And the deal was this, adhere to the structure, obey the commands and the regulations, and Israel would receive God's blessing. Disobey, rebel, or simply become lax in the, uh, in the observance of God's instructions and blessing will be removed. Okay. Lack of blessing generally means removal from the promised land or death, which really in God's eyes is one and the same. Okay. An exact carrying out of God's system of worship and atonement in general society was required. It could not be sloppy. It couldn't be intermittent. It couldn't be haphazard. Scrupulous attention to detail was commanded by the Lord. So much so that back in Leviticus chapter 7 verse 18 it said, the man who offered it, a sacrifice that is, a man who offered it will not be accepted. And that went on to say, basically, if it wasn't done exactly as it was supposed to be done. Okay. Now, I'm sure that every teacher of Torah and in the Old Testament must have been asked a dozen times or more why all this seemingly inordinate attention to detail. Okay. And the answer is really quite straightforward. It's because God's ways aren't our ways. God's ways aren't man's ways. They're not inherently known to us. Okay. Corrupt mankind had no idea on his own of just how Jehovah was to be worshipped. Okay. Look at the variation from religion to religion around the world as it is today. And when it comes to the procedures and the conventions used to worship God, these religions... And rituals are, for the most part, man-made. Right? They are the result of man's misguided attempt to conceive in our own minds how God wants to be worshipped. Okay? And I'll tell you that even within 
the church. So much of the worship practices are man-made. It happens in the way that we prefer way too much. Not the way God ordains it. Now Calvin, who was a great student of the Hebrew Scriptures, had a, a most profound answer to the common query of just why God was so detail-oriented in these ritual and behavioral instructions to the Israelites. And he says this, Since God prefers obedience to all sacrifices, he was unwilling that anything should remain doubtful as to the external rites, which were not otherwise of great importance, that they, the Israelites, might learn to observe precisely and with most exact care whatever the law commanded and that they should not obtrude anything of themselves. See, the old English way of speaking may have blurred a little of that for some of you. So in a nutshell, Calvin says that obedience is the key to our relationship with God. And that since man, especially so far removed from our ideal state, cannot, uh, we cannot of ourselves just somehow mystically know right, how to conduct life and worship. God must show us. Right? And that man has to be given opportunity to do it right by God giving us instructions. Otherwise, we're going to offend our Creator. Okay. And these detailed instructions are there so as to eliminate any excuse from men such that they have no choice but to make up our own thoughts and being ignorant of what God actually expected. And for some reason, the church as we now know it, the church that admitted or not, is really the Roman version of what began as a sect of Messianic Jews, okay, has come to the conclusion, in general, that details of worship, personal conduct, God's do's and don'ts and all such, don't matter anymore. Okay? That it's all entirely up to the individual worshiper to decide for him or herself since the advent of Jesus Christ. Okay? And as long as we're sincere in our efforts, that's good enough. Yet there is almost certainly nothing in either the Old Testament or New that indicates how we worship Yehovah and how we conduct our lives that has suddenly become of no consequence because Messiah has come nor that good enough is good enough when it comes to obedience to that which the Lord's commanded and he has not changed or rescinded any of his principles Christ says in Matthew 5.17 don't think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets I've not come to destroy but to fulfill That is, Yeshua did not come to exchange the law for grace. Often that word fulfill is taken to mean that something has been brought to an end. The task is finished. In this case, referring to the law. In other words, too often we take this to mean, I didn't come to destroy the law just to end it. Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? 
the Greek word for end, or to, which means to finish or complete something, is telos. T-E-L-O-S. Telos. But guess what? In that statement in Matthew 5.17, it's not the word that was used there. The word that was used was pleru. P-L-E-R-O-O. And that means to fill up with meaning. To make something abundant. To bring it to its greatest state. Not to end it. Yeshua was going to take the laws and commands of the Father, which were full of shadows and types, and bring them to the fullest extent and purpose they'd always pointed to. And Jesus goes on to say that in in, in the next couple of verses in Matthew 5, um, that anybody who teaches that even one iota of the Torah is now somehow abolished as a result of his coming will be considered the least in the kingdom of heaven. Couldn't be any clearer. So Yeshua clearly states that A, we need to bury this terrible idea once and for all that the Torah is now somehow obsolete and B, we need to recognize that we do have an obligation to be concerned and to be very careful in our worship and in our behavior and that we follow God's principles. We can only know what those principles are by looking to the Torah. The New Testament is far more about Jesus' life and about how he fulfilled those Old Testament prophecies in order to prove to everyone that he is indeed Messiah. He really does not go through and relay out all the principles. I mentioned to people last week as, as we ended and asked a question. Where is the gospel stated? Where is the new covenant stated in the Bible? Anybody know? You got it. In Jeremiah. Okay. The new covenant is not stated in the New Testament. It's simply brought about. And the one who brought it about is, is identified and what he did to bring it about. Something we have to remember. You want to understand what Jesus brought about? You better go look to the Old Testament. Because that's all the prophecies that he's fulfilling. He didn't invent some new ones. I've heard some say, well, if Jesus didn't say it, then we don't have to do it. Nice try. The problem is that the Apostle John says Jesus is the Word. All the Word. And he was in existence before the world began. What is the Word? In one form, it's the Bible. All the Bible. Remember, when John makes it clear that Jesus is the Word and that he is God and was with God before the world existed... The written word that John was thinking about was the only one that existed. The Torah, or what we call more accurately the Old Testament. There wasn't any New Testament. 
when John was writing. Okay. Now, one other matter that I think I need to address at this point. We've spent the last several months looking deeply into what is commonly called the law. I have to tell you, I really don't like that term very much. All right. it, it's really kind of sloppy and imprecise, and particularly for Gentiles, it, it gives the wrong sense of what's going on. I prefer to use the word Torah because until the Greek language became all the rage, the word was Torah. Okay. Sometimes when studying anything carefully, we can get lost in a swamp of details and lose sight of the overall picture. And we have been swimming in a swamp of details for a while now in Torah class especially as concerns Leviticus. So let's stop for a minute and take stock of where we, where we are, where we've come from. It's time we ask ourselves an important question. Why do we Gentile and Jewish believers need to bother to study the Torah and the Hebrew Scriptures at all? And further, are we to follow those laws and commands of the Torah? And if so, which ones? Or all of them? Okay. Or is all of this just a historical exercise just for the fun of learning? Okay. If we conclude that we're to obey all or at least appropriate parts of the regulations of the law, then exactly how do we do that? Right. As people living in the 21st century and so far removed from a culture that resembles what we read in the Bible. How do we do that when so much of what went on centered around a temple that's not there anymore? Around a sacrificial altar that's not there anymore? Around a priesthood that's not there anymore? Put another way, in modern times, what does it mean for disciples of Christ, particularly Gentile disciples of Christ to be Torah observant if that's what we're to be. Now, let me go where angels fear to tread for just a few minutes and see if I can help some of you with at least a portion of these challenging and important questions. To begin with, more than half of the 613 commands and regulations of the law concern ritual sacrifice and proceedings of temple activities. Since there is no temple anymore, hasn't been since 70 AD, no one can follow these rituals fully, even if they wanted to. And by the way, as much as Christians are perfectly glad to not have to deal with these temple rules, much of the religious Jewish population can hardly wait until that temple is rebuilt so that they can. Now further, as you have likely been taught in whatever church or synagogue you were brought up in, and as I've taught here, perhaps the primary role of Torah is to teach what sin is. To teach what atonement is and why it's important. And how complex and serious of a matter all of this is. Sin is a negative thing. So to look at it in the positive, the Torah is therefore the device that teaches us what righteousness is. It teaches us what holiness is. 
Because the opposite of sin is righteousness. And fortunately, in our day, this is where the train starts to fall off the track. The Western church says that since the Torah's purpose is to simply show us what sin is, that since the advent of Jesus, who saved us from those sins, we have no further need of knowing anything about sin. So, the Torah and the Old Testament has been rejected as irrelevant. The problem is this, since it's the Torah that tells us what sin actually is, then it's also the vehicle God has used to tell us his definition of both sin and righteousness. A good analogy would be that once we learn to speak English, does that mean we have no further need for a dictionary? The same thing applies with the Torah. Since it is the one and only document that defines sin and its consequences and its remedies, then we need to know what it says. Because our human definition of sin only rarely matches up with God's. So it is from the Torah that we get God's definition of sin and righteousness pretty handy thing to have if you're a believer, I think. Now, what we have to keep in mind is that while the sacrificial rituals of Torah could provide forgiveness for breaking the laws of Torah, there was nothing mystical or magical or supernatural about those rituals or procedures in and of themselves. Okay, The blood of those animals didn't somehow become supernaturally powered blood when that animal was slaughtered and its blood spilled to atone. The fat in the entrails burned up didn't transform into some magical smoke. The issue was always obedience to God. The creator and lord of the rituals wanted us to follow those because this was a partially at least a sign of our obedience. The rituals we have been and will continue to study themselves possess no inherent power, nor did the golden or silver instruments and vessels used in these rituals, nor did what the priests wore, nor did the sacrificial animal itself, nor the tabernacle tent, This is why God says he prefers our obedience rather than sacrifice. In other words, he's not saying that we have a choice of obedience or sacrifice. He's saying that our obedience is even more important than that sacrifice. In fact, it's our obedience that's the point of it all. Not the sacrificial animals or some barley or some wheat dough. Really, the Lord could have chosen anything as the sacrifice. And he could have chosen any procedure. But choose he did. And it's our duty but to obey. It's also important to understand the purpose of the sacrifice. It gave us a means of atonement. And atonement is only necessary... Because man is inherently sinful, and therefore man commits trespasses against God. 
God would rather have our obedience than the resulting needed sacrifice due to our disobedience. No disobedience, no sacrifice. Okay. By His giving to us a precise list of what is right and what is wrong, we can choose obedience or disobedience. By giving us precise sacrificial ritual, the Israelites could choose to be obedient to it and obtain atonement or not. Obedience to whatever it is that God ordains is the issue. But we've not been given license because Messiah Yeshua came to now decide for ourselves what's right and what's wrong. Nor to redefine what sin and righteousness is or to say it's different for different people. The Torah was and remains the defining document of right and wrong, sin and righteousness. That said... The Torah was never a vehicle designed to save mankind. St. Paul clearly stated that fact and said that only Yeshua HaMashiach was designed to save us. That being obedient to the Torah didn't save us. So, does that mean that disobedience to the Torah should be dropped because it didn't save us? Look, Going to work every day and earning a living doesn't save us from getting tooth decay, does it? Brushing our teeth and good oral hygiene, however, does. So does that mean that if we don't want cavities um, when we brush our teeth, so we're going to stop going to work Because that doesn't prevent cavities? I mean, pretty incongruous, isn't it? Okay? Of course not. They're two two entirely different issues. Obedience to God's Torah command is a separate issue from being saved by trust in Jesus Christ. But, and here's the kicker. Obedience to God's commands doesn't supernaturally save us any more than trusting in Jesus supernaturally gives us knowledge of what God views as sin and what he views as righteousness. Trusting Jesus atones for our sins. Learning God's commands and principles in the Torah enables us to know what obedience is because it's the Torah that defines it. God wants salvation for us and obedience from us not one or the other so God wants us to be obedient which is the purpose of Torah and God wants us to be saved which is the purpose of Christ but neither is the purpose of Torah to be an instrument of judgment and condemnation among believers and too much it is some of us may wear tzitzit Others may not. Some may eat kosher. Others may not. Some may wear prayer shawls. Others may not. Others may not. Some may observe the biblical feasts. Others may not. Whether we do or not do any of these things does not change our status as being saved. 
However, now that we are saved, don't we have even more reason to be obedient to the one who saved us? Paul says it in another way. Should we sin more just so we can get more grace? Obviously, he meant that as a rhetoric question, an absurdity. Folks, the lack of obedience is sin. We know from many passages in the Bible that the earliest believers strove to obey the Torah. They saw nothing that made trust in Yeshua and obedience to Torah as mutually exclusive. James the Just says to Paul in Acts 21, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe in Messiah Yeshua, and all of them are zealous for the Torah. He says in Acts 25.8, I have committed no offense, either against the law of the Jews, or against the temple, or against Caesar. I could go on and on with similar statements by Paul and others. They saw Torah observance as a natural result of trust in Jesus. And trust in Jesus as a natural result of understanding the purpose and the meaning of Torah. Torah and Jesus interlock. They're complementary. They're inseparable. So why do we study Torah? Because God, because Torah gives us God's definition of sin and righteousness. Without it, we have no idea what obedience consists of. Should we obey the teachings of Torah? Yes. Because obedience is what God seeks from us above all else. How do we obey Torah? Now that's where the struggle is. Because it's also, but it's also really much of what this class is about. To understand Torah such that we might discover what it is that Jehovah ideally expects from each of us. So with that, let's move on and resume our study of Leviticus. Open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 8. Leviticus chapter 8. Adonai said to Moshe, Take Aharon and his sons with him, the garments, the anointing oil, the bull for the sin offering, the two rams in the basket of matzah, and assemble the entire community at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moshe did as Adonai ordered him, and the community was assembled at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the community, This is what Adonai has ordered to be done. Moses brought Aaron and his sons. He washed them with water. He put a tunic on him wrapped the sash around him, clothed him with the robe, put the ritual vest on him, wrapped around him the decorated belt and fastened the vest to to him with it. He put the breastplate on him. And on the breastplate he put the urim and tumim. He set the turban on his head. And on the front of the turban he affixed the gold plate, the holy ornament, as Adonai had ordered Moshe. Then Moshe took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and everything in it thus consecrating them. He sprinkled some on the altar seven times, anointing the altar with all of its utensils and the basin with its base to consecrate them. 
He poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Moshe brought Aharon's sons, clothed them with tunics, wrapped sashes on them, put headgear on them, as Adonai had ordered Moshe. Then the young bull for the sin offering was brought, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull for the sin offering. And after it had been slaughtered, Moses took the blood and put it on the horns of the altar all the way around with his finger, thus purifying the altar. The remaining blood he poured out at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. Moses took all the fat on the inner organs, the covering of the liver, the two kidneys and their fat, and made it go up in smoke on the altar. But the bull and its hide, its flesh, and its dung were taken outside the camp and burned up completely as Adonai had ordered Moses. Next, the ram for the burnt offering was presented. Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And after it had been slaughtered, Moses splashed the blood on all sides of the altar. When the ram had been cut into pieces, Moses made the head, the pieces, and the fat go up in smoke. When the inner organs and the lower parts of the legs had been washed with water. Moses made the entire ram go up in smoke on the altar. It was a burnt offering, giving a fragrant aroma, an offering made by fire to Adonai, as Adonai had ordered Moses. Then the other ram was presented, the ram of consecration. Aharon and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and after it had been slaughtered, Moshe took some of its blood and put it on the tip of Aharon's right ear on the thumb of his right hand, on the big toe of his right foot. Next, Aharon's sons were brought in. Moshe put some of the blood on the tips of their right ears, on the thumbs of their right hands, on the big toes of their right feet. Then Moshe splashed the blood on all sides of the altar. He took the fat, the fat tail, all the fat covering the inner organs, the covering of the liver, the two kidneys with their fat in the right thigh. And from the basket of matzah, that was before Adonai, he took one piece of matzah, one cake of oiled bread, one wafer, and placed them on the fat and on the right thigh. Then he put it all in Aaron's hands and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before Adonai. Moshe took them out of their hands and made them go up in smoke on the altar on top of the burnt offering. They were a consecration offering, giving a fragrant aroma, an offering made by fire to Adonai. Moshe took the breast and waved it as a wave offering before Adonai. It was Moshe's portion of the ram of consecration as Adonai had ordered Moshe. Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood which was on the altar and he sprinkled it on Aaron in his clothing, on his sons with him in their clothing and consecrated Aaron and his clothing with his sons and theirs. Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the meat at the door of the tent of meeting and eat it there with the bread that's in the basket of consecration as I ordered when I said that Aaron and his sons are to eat it. Whatever is left over of the meat and bread you're to burn up completely. You're not to go out from the entrance to the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your consecration are over since Adonai will be consecrating you for seven days. He ordered done what has been done today in order to make atonement for you. You are to remain at the entrance to the tent of meeting day and night for seven days, thereby obeying what Adonai ordered done. 
so that you may not die. For this is what I was ordered. Aharon and his sons did all the things which Adonai ordered through Moshe. Now much of this is familiar territory to us because what is happening here is that much of what was instructed to be done earlier is now finally being done. And therefore, I'm not going to go through much of the detail about the protocol of the ceremonies and rituals consecrating the priesthood into existence. Now, at the core of God's plan for saving mankind from its predicament of inherent sinfulness and therefore mankind's separation from God is holiness. Jehovah has been instructing Israel on what holiness is, what holiness does, and what holiness looks like. Along with this is the need for God to communicate to mankind what pure worship consists of and just how mankind can show our gratitude to him by means of obedience to everything he's ordained. The Israelite priesthood was the keeper and the guardian and the authority of the word of God, the Torah. It was their duty to instruct all the people in holiness and to keep a watchful eye upon the people so that they didn't go astray. To make sure that nothing unclean or even common came into contact with that which was holy. Performing the many rituals called out in the Torah was just a part of their duties as Jehovah's servants. You see, God was setting up a dynamic that was in total contrast to the false religions of the world. In God's pure system, priests were servants, not lords. They served God and the people. They served the people by officiating the ritual sacrifices that the people were instructed by Jehovah to perform in order to maintain a good relationship with him. They also performed rituals that were on behalf and for the benefit of the nation of Israel as a whole. The priests made sure that the people did what they were supposed to do so they didn't offend God. But the priests were never to enrich themselves. The priests of false religions were generally among the wealthiest, most powerful, and privileged in their society. This was not to be so for the Israelite priests. Now it helps to visualize that there is a passing of time between the end of Leviticus chapter 7 and the beginning of Leviticus chapter 8. And though you wouldn't know by a superficial reading of it, during that time, the golden calf incident occurred. Okay? And the wilderness tabernacle was constructed. So a lot happened between the close of chapter 7 and the first words of chapter 8. And as will be addressed almost immediately in chapter 8, we find that Aaron and his sons, the first high priest and the first common priests of Israel, had to be purified in order to assume their positions. Why? 
because they were sinful and therefore impure. These same men who were now about to become God's personal servants and the keepers of the truth had only months earlier willingly and fully participated in the abomination of the building of an idol, the golden calf. I mean, what great hope this really ought to be for us. I mean, if Jehovah will accept such sinful men as his own priests and welcome them into his own holy dwelling place, even after doing such terrible things, how much more will he accept us who have placed our trust in his Son? And as much as it in some ways pains me to say it, even that monster, Yasser Arafat, the father of modern day terrorism, if he had only moments before his heart stopped giving his life over to Yeshua, he would now be fully forgiven and standing in Yehovah's glorious presence. Chapter 8 begins with Moses being named the officiator of what was going to follow. See, Moses was going to be the priest maker. Moses was going to conduct the ceremony of ordination. And Moses was instructed in verse 3 to assemble all the congregation to the door of the tent. Two things to know. Okay, first, all the congregation is not literal in the sense we might be thinking of it. It was referring to the elders or some type of governing assembly, those who represented all Israel, and it won't be the last time we see this format. Second is the term at the door of the tent. It also was not entirely literal. Rather, it's referring to the congregation congregating to the east of the entry to the tabernacle courtyard. And verse 5 simply verifies what I had told you about how all the instructions we have read in the earlier chapters were done at an earlier date. But it is also verified that the Israelite people were aware of those instructions and what was to happen because Moses says, see, folks, this is the thing you had been told would happen and here it is. So Moses washes Aaron and his sons with water to purify them. And this uh, purification washing wasn't really about dirt and grime, although being physically hygienic was was a part of the ritual. It, It had a symbolic symbolism similar to being baptized. The washing was an outward expression of a spiritual principle. One had to be pure. One had to be cleansed of their defilement in order to come before the God of the universe. After Aaron had been washed, Moses dressed Aaron in the unique uniform of the high priest. There were eight pieces in all that made up Aaron's outfit, four of which were common to all of the priests. We looked at those garments piece by piece in Exodus 28 and then again in Exodus 39, so we're not going to do that here again. After washing, then dressing Aaron in his high priestly garments... Moses then takes this specially concocted anointing oil, this, this, this uh, fine olive oil 
that was mixed with certain proportions of spices. And then he anointed the tabernacle and all the special furniture that was in it, the menorah, the incense altar, the table to show bread, presumably the Ark of the Covenant, then the brazen altar, and then the labor of water, and then finally Aaron himself. And after the tabernacle and all of its furnishings, and then Aaron were anointed, Aaron's sons, the common priests, were also anointed with oil. Now it was time for some of the all-important sacrificial rituals. First, the hatah, the purification offering. Um, And of course it's a bull that's used. The most expensive and highest of all possible animal offerings. And the usual rituals performed. Aaron and his sons perform semachah. They lay their hands on the head of that bull, which is still alive at this point. Then it's slaughtered. And since the consecration ceremony is not yet completed, however, Aaron is not yet authorized to perform the duties of the high priest, nor are his sons authorized to do the duties of the common priest, so it still is on Moses the mediator to do it. So it's Moses who dabs the blood from the bull under the horns of the brazen altar. Then Moses pours out um, the remainder of the bull's blood onto the base of the brazen altar. Why put oil and then blood onto the altar and other items of the tabernacle? Because until they're cleansed and purified, they're not fit for service to God. They were just made out of common materials, manufactured by human hands. So they were unclean. Remember our God principle. Uncleanness is contagious. Whatever touches uncleanness becomes unclean. Okay. The, the brazen altar and all the other tabernacle vessels and tools had become infected with uncleanness because they'd been touched by human hands. Okay. So now the brazen altar has been consecrated and it's ready for its purpose. And the very first sacrifice is laid upon its fire grill. The fat and certain parts of the bull's entrails are laid by Moses, not by Aaron, right, onto the altar and turned into smoke. But the remaining parts of the bull, the hide, all of its flesh, everything else but some certain entrails and the fat that surrounded them, that's taken outside the camp. Right? And it's burned up out there. And that place that they take, it's one that we've talked about now several times in here. Right? This place that we'll see this phrase over and over and we'll see it again in the New Testament. Outside the camp. has a very symbolic meaning. So there on a common wood fire, not on an altar but on a common wood fire beyond the tabernacle, away from the area from where the Israelites were in camp, the bull's remains were burned up to ashes. Actually, they were destroyed the way one would burn up trash. Okay? Because the only part of the bull for this hatat sacrifice that served any purpose at all was the entrails and the fat, the halev, that surrounded them. So next a ram, a male sheep, that's at least one year old, was brought forward. Aaron 
and his sons laid their hands on that ram, identifying this ram as the one brought to God for the hatat to symbolize the transference of their guilt and their sin onto this innocent sheep. And it's slaughtered. The ram's blood's collected. It's splashed all over the altar. And then, unlike the bull, the ram's head and flesh, entrails, fat, pretty much most of the ram gets burnt up. And we're reminded once again that the purpose for the burning up was to create smoke. Okay. Immediately following the sacrifice of the ram, a second ram is brought forward and Aaron and his sons perform semachah again. But now the ritual changes. Moses takes some of this ram's blood and he dabs it onto Aaron's right ear, right thumb, and right big toe. What is the meaning of this? Later in Leviticus, we'll get into the laws of Zara'at. Uh, right, that is the rituals for dealing with skin diseases. Right, which is all too often lumped together and mislabeled as leprosy. Because these skin diseases were a very serious form of ritual uncleanness. And this was because skin diseases were greatly feared and typically highly contagious. This is why Israelites who contracted a skin disease were put outside the camp. They were separated. They were quarantined. A skin disease was perhaps the most outwardly visible form of uncleanness a person could have. Now, please take notice, and I hope see this important connection. I've introduced you to the principle that uncleanness is contagious. Here in Leviticus 8.23, we see that part of the procedure for purifying Aaron and his sons from their uncleanness, that might, they might become priests for God, is the same exact procedure for purifying a person from their unclean state due to having contracted a highly contagious skin disease. It's the same ritual procedure. See, normally our impure state, our state of sin, is inward. It's not externally visible to others. It, that was Aaron and his son's condition, which is the same as it is for all mankind. They were unclean in their sins, but outwardly there really wasn't much sign of it. You see, God is able to see it, though, in Aaron, just like he sees it in us and all mankind. You and I cannot visibly see our own inherent sin or the inherent sin of others, even though I think we think we can sometimes. The word cautions us that man looks at the external, yet Yehovah looks at the internal. A skin disease is something we can see, but we can't know the condition of somebody's heart. And just as a man can spot a skin disease a mile away, God can spot the sinful conditions of our hearts. Okay. Skin disease in the Bible is symbolic of uncleanness. Remember how God had Moses put his hand inside of his cloak? And then when he pulled it out, it was white with skin disease. 
Yehovah was demonstrating to Moses by means of giving him that temporary disease what Moses' true condition inwardly actually was. Okay. In God's eyes, Moses was just as unclean as anybody else. Okay. Then he had Moses put his hand back into that cloak and when he pulled it out again, it was clean. Among men, there is utterly no way to transform that which is unclean into something that is clean. Okay. Among men, uncleanness can only beget more uncleanness. Only God can take what is unclean and make it clean. But something else is also revealed in this consecration ritual. Just as oil anoints both Aaron and the altar, so is blood applied to both Aaron and the altar. An organic link Inseparable is made between the priesthood now and sacrifice. By means of the blood from the altar, Aaron and his sons are ordained to offer sacrifice at the altar. In time, the blood of one who will be called our high priest in heaven will be used as the sacrificial blood. The shadow and type of the blood sacrifice and the high priest connection that we see built right here in Leviticus is brought to its fullest intent when Jesus the Christ acts as our high priest and his own blood becomes that sacrificial blood once and for all mankind. Okay. So as the ordination and the consecration ritual continues in verse 26, we see a procedure that ought to ring a bell. We see a grain offering. Presented. And this grain offering, the mincha, which is normally presented at any given offering ceremony, is one of several different but acceptable methods of preparing the grain, unleavened, leavened, cooked on a griddle, made into a cake, is here offered in three ways. Okay. An unleavened cake, which would have been cooked on a griddle, and then a cake soaked with oil that would have been baked in an oven, and then finally a wafer. Okay. And these are placed into Aaron and his son's hands atop some fat from the ram and they're presented to the Lord by means of a procedure we just learned about in the previous chapter. In Hebrew it's called tenufah, the wave offering. Okay. That is, the sacrificial material is head up, held up above the shoulder by the worshiper and then it's moved back and forth. After that, Moses takes the sacrifice out of Aaron's hands. He places it onto the brazen altar and it's burned up, turned into a pleasing odor. Now notice that the breast of the ram was offered in a tenafah by Moses. It was not burned up in the altar. Moses got to keep that as his portion of food. And then as a finale to the consecration of Aaron and his sons, a mixture of the special holy anointing oil and the sacrificial blood was sprinkled on them and their clothing. The consecration was now complete. Okay. However, it wouldn't take effect until a period of time had passed, seven days, because it was going to be repeated. And we get another important principle here. 
uncleanness, defilement can happen in an instant. But becoming pure takes time. What is the precise significance of that seven day period that they went through for the consecration and purification of the priests and the tabernacle? It's hard to know. But we do know that it's also the exact same period of time that a person who had a skin disease but is now diagnosed as clean had to be apart from everybody. Aaron and his sons were consecrated but they had to remain within that tabernacle compound for seven days before they could begin their service. Let's not close out chapter 8 until we're clear about the principles established here that are going to carry over to the remainder of the Bible. And the main principle is that sin is universal. It pollutes everything it touches because it's contagious. Sin's roots go deeply into the world and into us. After the fall and the Garden of Eden, mankind became incorrigible. Psalm 14.3 says, All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So we by now should be recognizing that the Torah does not give us a once and for all remedy for sin. Oh yes, there are sacrifices that allow individual sins to be forgiven. There are even sacrifices which allow for a time for men's sinful natures to be covered over, so to speak, so that they, so that approaching God is possible. Okay? But even the high priest was no different than any other man in regard to his sin nature and in his propensity to commit sins. Paul makes it clear in Hebrews, particularly chapters 5 through 10, that try as they might, the priests could not remove the sin nature from men. That's because the law was never designed for that purpose. It was Christ alone whose atoning sacrifice removed that sinful nature of the one who trusted in him, at least in the eyes of God. And when Paul says that Christ is better than the law, it was in this sense that he meant it. That Christ could do what the law couldn't. He could save Yet, that wasn't because the law or the Torah had failed. It was because it was the purpose of the law to show man what sin and righteousness is. It wasn't to save men from their sins. It was Christ's job to do that. We'll go a little farther next week.